Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, welcome aboard John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is hour two of the program. Uh, we're going to jump right into an interview that I recorded with former Major League pitcher Jim Parquet. And what stands out about him is that he was drafted out of college after he went UCLA and within about a year was pitching at the major league level. And in fact, his rookie status was lost after the 1998 season, which was his first year at age 23, when he went 7-5 and for the Chicago White Sox in 21 starts. By 2000, he was pitching the first game of the ALDS against the Seattle Mariners when the Chicago White Sox won the division. That year, he went 13-6, a 428 ERA in 32 starts, pitching nearly 200 innings. And in the postseason, he ended up getting hit around a little bit. He ended up giving up three runs in six innings, which by today's standards is not a bad game at all, but ended up having a little bit of uh, fatigue within his shoulder. And that led to a serious um, rehab process and surgery and stuff that really never allowed him to become the same pitcher that he was in 2000. And in 2001, he made five starts for the White Sox. 2002, he pitched in eight games, made four starts. And 2003, he was with the Tampa Bay Rays, making the final five starts of his career. And it's unfortunate that a guy with so much talent, to that point, a fantastic track record, a guy who pitched in the College World Series, a guy who pitched for Team USA within about a year, and had a lot of success at the major league level, was already in the postseason pitching game one of an ALDS, was still pretty much finished by his mid-20s, which is a shame. And you're going to hear what Jim is up to now, and it looks like he's doing pretty well. So before any further, I'll play this interview I recorded this past week with former White Sox and Tampa Bay Rays pitcher Jim Parquet. Good afternoon, this is John Pielli. I'm happy to be joined by former Major League pitcher Jim Parquet. Jim, thanks for having a couple minutes today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, Jim, you were, you were drafted in 1997 in the first round 
Um, you obviously had a little bit of uh, you know history before. You had some success pitching. Tell us a little bit about you know prior to the time you you, you were drafted, and a little bit about the success you had before you uh, you ended up uh, pitching professionally. Small ball, so 
thank the city council chances and massive, massive responsibility and uh, great experience. So, not a problem, not a problem. Once again, John Pielli here with Jim Park A. And, you know, I'll tell you one thing that's interesting is, you know, you get the experience, you know, playing for Team USA. And then a year later, you end up winning the College World Series at UCLA. Um, compare that stage, because obviously, you know, there's the obvious things in there, like you mentioned, playing for your country and stuff, you know, putting the USA across your chest and everything that that means. But, uh, you know, was there any added incentive when, you know, you're in the College World Series that year to say, hey, if, if, if I could add a College World Series championship to this, this is a, a nice little track record. Yeah, you know, I've played in a ton of World Series, I mean, Lily World Series, or Cobb World Series, uh, and then it doesn't have an honor level, so the, the biggest thing that I think uh, that I learned from going from the Olympics into the College World Series is not only the stage that you're on, but how to compete, because the regular season is a hell of a lot different than playoffs, you know, playoffs, it's obviously the
And once again, John Pierre here with Jim Parquet, former Major League pitcher. Um, you know, the White Sox end up winning the division or they end up making a postseason in 2000. And you, you end up pitching game one of the ALDS against the Mariners. Tell us a little bit about that experience. And, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it was a time that, if I'm not mistaken, your, your arm was bothering you a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it brought me back on earlier rest. Um, you know, I, I was healthy by all means uh, throughout that game, but uh, a lot of, I think, uh, Sriracha and uh, Baldwin had gone down. And so, you know, I was a third, third star. I was still doing really good. Um, but, you know, they said, hey, here's a point where I die, you know. Um, so I took up all with, with the idea that I wasn't going to treat that game any differently than if I face the Mariners during the regular season, you know, so I think uh, Chicago did a big long drop at that point and, you know, I just put that city on my back and she was behind me and went out and just tried to throw strike one and stay within and not do too much. You know, I was never a Pedro Martinez or a frontline guy, uh, you know, during my time. I gave you six solid innings, you know, two or three runs. Give me two or three rounds, I'll probably win the game, you know, that you don't give me one or two, and I'm, I'm probably going to come out even or lose the game, you know, and then you can pass the sixth or seventh inning, you know, you're going to flip the coin, that's kind of how it was, you know, so I went out there with that idea, but those six strong innings, and then you can pass that, hopefully the bullpen turn it over to the highway and smoke it, and you know, keep smoking Bob Harry, you know, and he's a Yeah, no question about it. And of course, you know, it's after that time where you start to develop the problems with your arm, and this this comes to a, a tough point in a lot of people, a lot of players' careers, where you have to, you know, go through the rehab and get, you know, try to get yourself back to the level that you were before. Uh, tell us a little bit about that the process that it took to get you back on the mound, and you know, did you ever did you ever get to a point where you were pitching back to where you were before your injuries? Yeah, I mean, uh, to answer that question, not even close. You know, I, I was, I was getting, in 2000 and 2001, you know, I was getting to a point where I was becoming a, a proven, you know, frontline starter. You know, I was, I was really at uh, number two kind of, uh, working and starting role and, uh, then just had work, uh, with my arm and so, you know, you know, you, you throw it out enough, you're going to injure yourself. And so going into the surgery, I was pretty motivated. I worked extremely hard. I came into camp in 2003 or two, and I was in great shape. Just, they did a shoulder capsule shrinkage, which was kind of a controversial thing at that time. And a lot of us went down. I think there was only one or two guys that ever recovered from that. But I was through in the big leagues, and then I was never the same, and, you know, you get compared to who you were or who you were about to become all the time, and so, um, I was still given an opportunity, you know, with the idea that, hey, you know, my arm was going to come back, I was going to become that, you know, 1994 lefty with Zeke and that kind of stuff, but I was 84, 86, maybe touching 88 once in a while, so, I think after the surgery, you know, I, I, I think the biggest accomplishment that I 
picking street and got pretty sure ten times the pictures and I just didn't have the staff. You know, every time they'd be want the grass crew to bring the ice cream out for me. So there's a two eighty six round and I had a big league game with foundation behind it. You know, ball comes back real quick, you start getting scared for your life, but you know, I remember times when I was just on my game, I changed it for work for good and I I remember I took a long hearing in the eighth against that terrible base and I was just really coming out an hour. But uh you know, I practiced this tough. You know, it 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 rained on the lot, you know, at that point I had family, um, you know, support. And granted, you know, there's just some crying, but I was twenty eight years old, so I had at least yeah, no question about it. And I tell you, you know, like you look at the the odds that are against you, no matter who you are. I mean, the average span in a major league baseball career is around the the, the four to five year range. Did you uh, did you have yourself plan for you know when it was all said and done into something that you were thinking about doing after baseball? Yeah, uh, you know, it's crazy how life just takes twists and turns for you. You know, you always try to get a game plan, at least for myself. You know, my dad coming from nothing and and uh, telling me, you know, it's it's about your hard work, it's about the passion, but um, it's not about the money, but the fact, you know, what you did and how people will, will remember you and that was really true success, you know. And so we put a game plan together based upon that and uh, you know, my dream was always to finish out and uh, coach the class that you coach somewhere we had tons of offers that mean everywhere and anywhere all around us, but you know, with what I do currently, I just can't, I, I can't take those positions because there's so many people that rely upon me. I should say young athletes, not people, but young athletes that do. And, you know, currently, what I, what I do is I train um, baseball players to, not, not to have baseball opportunity, but to have baseball options. So, you know, I'm looking for that. Uh, Buffy and that parent who want to earn a buck in the game in the form of a college scholarship or, or a pro contract, but with none of the fields, you know, I'm not a guy that is going to sit there and candy coat and I'm going to tell you exactly what it is and go from there. And so that's, that's brought a lot of, of uh, success for a lot of players. You know, I've got some MLB guys, I've got a lot of pro guys, I've got a lot of D1 scholarship athletes and things like that. So that's, uh, that's what, what is bad. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I kind of say to some degree it brings more joy than me playing. I feel at, at times, you know, my big league career was really just kind of a preparation for what I'm doing now. So, uh, yeah, that's fantastic, Jim. Listen, I want to thank you for having some time. Appreciate you being part of the program and hope to talk to you again soon. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with former Major League pitcher Jim Parquet. We're going to take our first break of this hour. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on. Past ball show. Don't forget to tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. And of course, follow JohnPielli.com. Back after this. Hey, I'm Sean Big Daddy Lynch. I'm Joe Delisanti. And I'm Tim O'Brien. And, and we're, we're your favorite tailgaters. tailgaters. 
Listen to our show every Tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on NTR Radio. We'll tempt your palate with football, basketball, baseball, hockey, you name it, we got it. That's right, we do. We'll stir things up, voice what's grinding our gears, and just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk Radio, are you ready for the tailgaters? Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. You're listening to MTR Radio. A flippin' out radio production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blaze, blaze in the steel. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We will offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over five and a half million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. My next guest in the next interview that I'm about to play for you is with a former Major League catcher who, pretty similar to Jim Parquet, was up in the Major Leagues pretty quickly after he was drafted. He was drafted by the Minnesota Twins in 1979, and by 1981, he was making his Major League debut. Of course, 1981 also coincides with the Major League Baseball player strike, which ended up splitting the season up. But after that, he became a regular catcher and was a starter or a backup catcher for the Minnesota Twins from 1982 to 1989. Now, it included some stints as the starter, but as we as he tells as we as we go back and forth, um, he tells about some of the times where he was the starter and he wasn't the starter, and he kind of just stuck around, but continued to put up pretty good numbers over the balance of his career. Hit 77 home runs from 1981 to 1989 with the Minnesota Twins, and what of course was part of the 1987 World Series championship team that featured pitchers Burt Blylevin and, of course, the left-hand pitcher Frank Viola. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with longtime Minnesota Twins catcher Tim Laudner. Good afternoon. This is John Pielli, and I'm joined right now by former Minnesota Twins catcher Tim Laudner. Tim, thanks for having a couple minutes. Hey, no problem, man. And, uh, you know, when you started out, before you ended up going to college, you were originally drafted by the Cincinnati Reds as a pitcher. You end up making a decision to go to college, and you spend four years at the University of Missouri. Was that a difficult decision for you, whether you wanted to sign with the Reds or go to college? No, it wasn't a, a difficult decision at all. Um, the Cincinnati Reds, and indicated to me through uh, Bill Clark, who was actually a scout 
who's lived out of uh, Columbia, Missouri, just a, a wonderful man. I'm not 100% sure if he's still around or not, but, um, you know, they had asked if I was interested in going to uh, junior college, either Iowa Western Community College or maybe uh, Indian Hills Community College. And so in Iowa, I really didn't have much interest in that. Um, if I was going to go to school, I wanted to go to a four-year school and at least play three years. Um, so, hence the uh, University of Missouri, I'd like to think that um, as a pitcher in high school, um, from the time that I landed on the campus at the University of Missouri, I had an opportunity to grill brain and decide that pitching was not going to be the right thing, that catching was going to be a... Um, a lot more fun, um, I feel a lot less arm problems, which I had in high school. Um, I actually ended up playing right field my freshman year in college at the University of Missouri, um, and then caught the next few years, um, like sophomore and junior years. Yeah, and then of course after you end up graduating, after four years, you end up uh, being drafted by the Minnesota Twins, and it looks like you have some success right away. I mean, the 1981 season turns out to be really good for you. You hit 40 home runs. It seems to be going pretty well. Well, yeah, I uh, actually, uh, actually, I spent three years at the University of Missouri. I signed up to my junior year and went into the uh, Minnesota Twins minor league system. And you know, I'm not. Uh, I didn't exactly start out. Um, you know, going crazy, I did get hurt um, in uh, my second season, 1980, um, in AA, and when I recovered from an ankle injury, I was uh, sent to Visalia, California, which was my first experience with Tom Kelly, who was the manager of the Visalia Oaks at the time, um, New Jersey boy. Um, and then I started with Tom Kelly in the spring of 1981, and, and basically he said to me, We're gonna, let's make some changes and see how it goes. And um, I had a, a, a solid year in double A in 1981. Our team had a, a very good year in 1981. I was called up at the end of the year, but our team, our double A uh, affiliate, went on to become the Southern League champions. And although I wasn't there, I'd like to think that I was whipping in heart and um, that I had already been called up and was, was playing at the Major League level that, uh, that uh, early September. So, um, yeah, that was a really good year for a lot of us that were um, at Double A with Tom Kelly in 19, uh, 1981. And a lot of us had the opportunity to play for world championships for the Tom subsequent to that. Oh, absolutely. Once again, John Pielli here with Tim Wadner. And what also stands out about 1981 is the fact that, you know, you, you made your debut with the Twins the same year that Ken Herbeck and Gary Gaetti made their debut with the Twins as well. And obviously you guys will be playing together for a long time. Yeah, you know, any time that, uh, and, you know, I was a teammate, uh, Gary and I were teammates at the double level for Tom Kelly that year, and we had a blast. It was uh, unfortunate because Kent thought that he was going to be the double-A first baseman that year, but he got sent to Visalia, California, and he tore that league up, and he was actually called up on a Monday in August, um, not long after the, the player strike was settled. I don't know if you remember, but that was also the year that the Major League struck for 50 
Yeah, of course. And so, you know, the rosters uh, in the minor leagues were somewhat frozen uh, because of that work stoppage. And once the um, play resumed, you know, some changes were made. Some of us were, uh, got called up, got an opportunity to, to show some of our skills. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to say the rest is history, but we certainly did have a good time. Yeah, no question about it. And of course, a year later in 1982, um, you start, you start, you're a star with the Twins. You end up becoming a starting catcher after Butch Weiniger is traded. And, you know, for a couple of years, you get a chance to be the starter. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you felt at that point. Did you feel like that was something that, you know, you had a chance to do for several years, be the starting catcher for the Twins? Well, uh, you know what? I, I got to tell you something. There are times, in all honesty, and I can say, I can say it with all honesty at my age right now, is that for whatever reason, there, there are guys that, that toil in the minor leagues, and once they get an opportunity to go to the big leagues, they they just take off and blossom. And, you know, in all, in all honesty, when I look back at my career, um, at least from an offensive standpoint, um, I did not take off offensively at the major league level. I ran into some problems, and I ran into some situations that I didn't uh, handle quite correctly. And uh, and so I, I'd like to, you know, I'm a self-admitted underachiever offensively at the major league level. I don't know that I ever lived up to um, my own expectations at the major league level, let alone anybody else's. Defensively, um, I, I considered myself to be one of the the top defensive catchers in the league during my career. Um, not maybe not the best, but certainly one of the top defensive catchers. Signal calling, um, game management, uh, working behind the plate. But offensively, I struggled uh, during the course of my career, and, and uh, you know I'm certainly okay with that. At this point in time, I'm not going to go back and change anything. I can't. But um, you know the reality is is that. You know, it's very, very difficult to play at the major league level. It's very difficult to allow yourself um, to, to showcase your ability to be able to relax and go out and to play to the best of your abilities. There's a lot that, that can be, um, you know, some distractions. There, there can be other things going on, but um, like I said, I wouldn't change anything to the world. Yeah, no question. I'll tell you, one thing you could say, you're very consistent. You stay, you, you were up with the Twins, and, you know, you, you had a chance to share time at, at the catcher position with, if I'm not mistaken, 12 different catchers over the course of up until 1987, 1988. Uh, what stands out about 1987, you were the backup catcher to Mark Salas. He ends up getting traded. You take over behind the plate, and you don't really have a good offensive regular season. You know, the ALCS, you know, you're still not really hitting, but you really take off in the World Series. That must have been a pretty good experience for you, plus hitting that home run and hitting over 300 in a seven-game World Series against the Cardinals. Yeah, that certainly was, uh, uh, you know, a thrill for me. And, and, and you know what? It, it might have been the first time um, all year that I felt like I relaxed because uh, at that point in time, I, I felt like I really didn't have anything to prove. Um, and then but what I did have, first and foremost, in my mind was uh, doing my best to handle my pitching staff because, you know, it all comes down to pitching and defense. And we certainly had a very good defensive ball club. We could catch the ball. 
Um, you know, I don't think that our but we certainly had a, um, you know, a, a future of Cy Young winner in Frank Viola. We had a future Hall of Famer in Dirk Wylevin. We had an excellent closer. But I don't know that uh, man for man, I don't know that we stacked up with the Detroit Tigers. Man for man on the pitching staff, I don't know that we stacked up on paper against the St. Louis Cardinals. But in a short series like that, anything can happen. And my focus was entirely on giving our pitcher the best opportunity to pitch deep into the ball game. And to be able to tip in offensively at a time when, you know what, there really wasn't a whole lot of pressure. And I think that there's a real kind of contrast when you look at um, teams over the course of the years. Um, man, you can go back as far as you want. You, your star players, and we had star players in our club, Ken Herbeck, Kirby Puckett, Tommy Bernanski, Jerry Gaetti. Um, these guys produced all year long. And we would not have been in the position to play for our American League Championship, and we would not have been in a position to play for the World Championship and the World Series had it not been for those guys. But sometimes those star players that find a way to relax over the course of a 162-game season, sometimes will add a little bit of extra pressure to themselves performing the postseason. And they might, and, and by adding that extra pressure, they may fall short of what it is that they want to accomplish offensively. And, and the, the, you know, I think the flip-flop, the contradiction is that the guys that, that put pressure on themselves to perform over the 162-game schedule the guys that finally relax in the course of a, a, a short series where, you know what, I'm not, I'm not supposed to be the leader of this team. Now I can finally go out and relax and, and have some good at that and have some fun. But mine, certainly my main focus was on making sure that I gave our pitcher the best opportunity to succeed when he put them on that day. Hey, going back to the, the World Series team of 87, you mentioned a couple of the guys that were on your pitching staff, Frank Biola's, the, um, you know, the, the Jeff Reardon's, guys like that. Who, who would you think or who in your own mind was, was the, the guy that you felt um, as, as a pitcher with his stuff can carry the team pretty much on his shoulders as a, as a catcher who's calling the game and has got the guys throwing to him? You know what, I, I would say that between the Bar 11 and Bar 11 as, as starters, it was a veritable tie. Um, you know, Frankie was a workhorse in the fact that he, he ate up a lot of innings. Uh, he was a winner and he was a competitor. And, you know, I can say no less for Burt Bar 11, the same thing. Um, he gave you all he got. Uh, fastball, curveball, Frankie fastball changeup. Um, you know, that. To be able to go out and, and catch those guys on a regular basis was, a, was an absolute dream. Um, I've thought them over the course of the years that I've, they were the only two guys that I had to catch over the course of my career. I would have never needed a glove. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty impressive, and of course, you end up making the All-Star team in 1988. That'd be a pretty special moment. After you know, probably within your own mind, you paid your dues. You're around this game, and now you get a chance to to be amongst the the best in the game. Um, I was uh, extremely thrilled that my manager Tom Kelly picked me as an alternate 
chance to go up there and be part of the festivities? Well, I think, I hope so. I, I hope they invite me. They don't invite me. <laughs> well, I, I, I would hope they were. If it wasn't, there'd be something wrong with them. Uh, uh, no, I think that, uh, you know what, it's, it's, it's kind of a weird thing because the All-Star Game is such a great, uh, great event, and it's turned into a, a five-plus-day event. And we're, you know, before it was a, you know, a two-day event at the most, and now it's, it's got all the pomp and circumstance of a presidential inauguration for crying out loud, and, um, you know, it'll, it'll be a really good weekend, but the, 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 the weird part of it is just that baseball players, and sometimes baseball people, are so routine-oriented that, Listen, I want to thank you for having some time, a lot of good stuff there. Uh, best of luck to you, and maybe I'll catch you at the All-Star game. Look me up. I'll buy you a beer. Thanks a lot, Tim. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with former Major League catcher Tim Laudner. As I continue in the program, this is the Passball Show. John Pielli is your host. Don't forget to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, as we keep the program interactive. I'm going to go back to something that happened in the 1940s and we talk about some of the shortstops whether it's a Vern Stevens or some guys like that that don't necessarily get the credit they deserve on May 4th 1946 a Washington Senator shortstop by the name of Cecil Travis had a six for six game 
giving the Senators fans a reminder of how good of an offensive player he was. And the unfortunate thing about it is that Travis was, like many other major league players, uh, sent to serve uh, for the U.S. in the military service. And the guy was an offensive star before he came back and was unable to play at the level that he did five years ago. Sometimes players lose their ability to play due to an advanced age and injuries. They suffer while they play the game. What happened to Cecil Travis was something out of his control. Cecil started his MLB career with the Senators in 1933 at age 19. He got into just 18 games, had 43 at-bats, and hit 302 while playing third base. Unfortunately, he did not get a chance to play in the World Series, where the Senators lost to the New York Giants. It was also the last time the Senators would win a pennant until they were the Minnesota Twins in 1965. Travis would hit 318 and 319, respectively, in 1934 and 1935, before he made the move to become a full-time shortstop, and that's when his career took off. As a shortstop in 1936, he hit 317, two home runs, but drove in 92 runs with 10 triples. He also added a th- career high, 34 doubles. He became a dependable bat in the lineup that featured Ben Chapman, John Stone, and Joe Cahool. A year later, he hit a staggering 344 with three home runs, 66 RBIs, in a lineup that had Hall of Fame outfielder Al Simmons and future Hall of Fame catcher Rick Farrell. In 1938, Travis hit 338, five home runs, 67 RBIs, with 96 runs scored and 190 hits. After a down season in 1939, where he hit 292, 563, with nine triples, he had a great 1940 season. In 1940, he hit 333, two home runs, 76 RBIs, 37 doubles, and 11 triples, and he was pretty similar to his 1936 to 1938 form. However, in 1941, he became a star. He had a career-high 356 with seven home runs, 101 RBIs, 39 doubles, 19 triples, 106 runs scored, and 218 hits. After 1941, like many other ball players, Travis was pushed into service, initially playing baseball in the Army. He played ball in the Army from 1942 to 1944 before finally getting called into duty in November of 1944. He suffered frostbite during the Battle of the Bulge on his toes and had part of his foot amputated. This, of course, you know, kept him very difficult for him to walk properly and made certainly made it difficult for him to play baseball once he returned to the Senators in 1945. He was obviously not the same player. He became a role player from 1945 to 1947 before retiring with a 314 average, 27 career home runs, 657 RBIs, 1594 hits, and 265 doubles. Through 1941, when he was age 28, he was at 332, 25 homers, 581 RBIs, 1,370 hits, and 238 doubles. According to Bill James, Cecil Travis was on pace to finish a 15-year career with about 2,843 hits, 511 doubles, 179 triples, and 64 home runs. Those numbers as a shortstop would have, without a doubt, put him in the Hall of Fame. Hopefully, the pre-integration committee gives Cecil Travis a little more consideration to be on the Veterans Committee ballot 
in all honesty, if the Veterans Committee thinks Rick Farrell is a Hall of Famer, then why not give Cecil Travis a little more consideration? Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We've kind of jumped around a little bit. We've covered a lot of history. We've covered some conventional stuff, talking about the Padres bullpen and the Mets bullpen. But I do want to finish talking about something that I've seen over the last couple weeks that should be getting a little more discussion and probably is in some areas. The Miami Marlins as a team that certainly is rebuilt over the last couple seasons. You know about the moves that they made two years ago to get Jose Reyes and Mark Burley and Heath Bell. And, of course, the trades that they've made since, trading all three of those players in addition to Hanley Ramirez and several other veteran players to get younger um, players that have been in the minor leagues, and some of them are starting to make an impact at the major league level. We talked a little bit about their pitching. Their starting pitching has been pretty good. Guys like Jose Fernandez, Henderson Alvarez, Nathan Avaldi, and Tom Kohler have certainly set themselves up where they can consider, out of those four, getting a decent start just about every time out. But one thing the Marlins have done is made an adjustment to their own ballpark that some other teams, whether it's the New York Mets or the San Diego Padres, have not been able to do. And teams that have those spacious ballparks that are called pitcher-friendly confines uh, have had a hard time scoring runs. The Miami Marlins, to this point, own the best record in the major leagues at home. And they play in a spacious ballpark themselves in their new home in South Florida. But what the Marlins have been able to do is cater their offense not necessarily with the players, but with the hitting mentality that has helped them out and helped them uh, take advantage of the friendly confines of their own stadium. While a team like the New York Mets have implemented an approach of take a lot of pitches, work deep counts, that could work for you, the Marlins have gone in a different direction. And they have trained all their hitters to just focus on hitting line drives instead of trying to hit the ball over the fence. Of course, they have a player in Giancarlo Stanton, their right fielder, who can hit the ball out of Yellowstone Park. He can hit the ball out of anywhere. There's no question about what stadium it is. His power makes for any stadium, whether it's pitcher-friendly or not. But the other players on the team are not the same type of players. A guy like Casey McGee, who came over from Japan after hitting almost 30 home runs last year, has changed his offensive approach and is focused on hitting line drives and taking advantage of the space in the outfield. Now, the extra space in the outfield certainly means that you have a lot further to hit the ball if you're looking to hit a home run but also means that the outfielders have a lot further to move when they're playing on defense. And the Marlins hitters have gone out there, whether it's Marcelo Zuna, whether it's Christian Yelich, whether it's Casey McGee, Garrett Jones, Jared Salta-Lamakia, they all have the same approach, just focus on hitting line drives. And that has allowed them to get a lot of hits, get a lot of runners on base, and kind of keep the other team off balance when they're playing in a spacious type of stadium. Any wonder if this can start perhaps a revolution amongst other teams that play in more pitcher-friendly stadiums to have a similar approach. It's worked for the Marlins. And you know about the Marlins starting pitching, which has been very good, which has allowed for the, the team to maybe get away with not scoring enough runs sometimes. But if you look up and down that Miami Marlins lineup outside of Giancarlo Stanton, 
there are a few players, if anybody, that scares you in the ability to hit a home run in a big spot. But a guy like Casey McGee, who has you know 20 plus RBIs and tied with Giancarlo Stanton, uh, along with Giancarlo Stanton, my my bad, uh, have the most RBIs amongst any two players for one team in all of Major League Baseball. And McGee's not doing it with home runs. Um, just the ability to get on base for the guys before, um, he's been able to just hit line drives, focus on hitting the ball, both pulling it and going the other way, and taking advantage on what has certainly been a home field advantage for the Miami Marlins in their ballpark. Last thing I wanted to touch on was uh, Cleveland Indians catcher George Kateris was designated for assignment the other day. Kateris got a chance to make one start while starting catcher Jan Gomes uh, was, uh, I guess his wife was having a baby and he was on paternity leave or whatever. But Kateris in his one game ends up going two for three with two solo home runs and a walk um, in, in the Indians games. Now, he may not play another game the rest of the season. Now, Kateris has a track record of being a serviceable backup major league catcher, and I'm sure many teams are going to inquire about his services if the Cleveland Indians don't need him. But I found something fascinating by just putting his one game in, in the books and assuming and stating that maybe it could be his only game of the season. His two for three with his two home runs and three at-bats give him a 667 average, a 750 on base percentage, a 2667 slugging percentage, a 3417 OPS, and an 840 OPS plus. So take that, stat nerds. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Big thanks to everybody who was part of the program today. Val Pascucci in the first hour, and in the second hour, Jim Parquet and Tim Lautner. We'll be back with you next week uh, covering everything in the history of Major League Baseball, whether it's historical, conventional. Always a reminder to check out JohnPielli.com for all my latest blog entries, as well as the interviews that I've done. All you got to do is just type a search in everything that I've put up there in regards to writing and interviews that are in relation to the subject of your interest are right up there. So feel free to check it out. And also, I keep saying we keep the program interactive. So continue to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. And we'll, of course, keep the discussion going that way. Big thanks to the guests today. We'll be be happy to be with you next week at the same time right here on MTR Radio. See you next week. Jumpy Ellie's basketball show. Hosted by a guy called Jumpy Ellie. Tune in to Jumpy Ellie's basketball show.